um, bit of rumination coming up. Did I get it right? So I thought it would be very timely today to um, go back right down to the basics. This is not remedial. This happens again and again and again. You know? um, as I've mentioned before, in the Vajra essence, after he's gone through shamatha and gone through vipassana and stage of generation and stage of completion, then he says, now just rest your body like a corpse in a charnel ground, etc. Right? So that practice, it sounds like, wasn't that pre-shamata? You know, that was like, you know, and there it is, way, way deep. So, you know, this is an image that comes up so often, like a spiral that keeps on coming around, but each time it comes around, it comes around in a deeper way. So I'd like to take you on a little bit of a spiral this time. So um, fasten your seatbelts, find a comfortable position, we'll go right in. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Now in the first phase of the meditation, let's try something really simple. Let your eyes be open. But now as if you were in a room with six windows, and you open them all wide so the fresh air can come in from all directions, your whole room flooded with light. Sit very quietly, quite still. But open all the doors, all the windows of your senses. Bring your awareness out to the visual, the auditory, to all six, so you're also vividly aware of thoughts and images, memories and fantasies, desires and emotions. So let your awareness be wide open to all manner of appearances, all manner of experiences. And just be present. Resting your awareness in the present moment with unwavering mindfulness, free of distraction, free of grasping.
within these six domains of experience, you're bound to be aware of the, the sensations of the breath, the fluctuations within the tactile field, and continue to relax more and more deeply, setting your body at ease with every out-breath. Whatever comes to mind, simply be aware of it, be present with it without reacting to it. Simply sustain a flow of awareness. Some call this open presence. Some call it choiceless awareness. Some call it mindfulness and some call it bare attention. So let all appearances arise unimpededly, but without grasping onto or being carried away by any of them. Sustain the stillness of your awareness, illuminating all the six sense fields. I call that a preliminary to shamatha. So now let's begin shamatha. We begin a process of retreat, withdrawing our attention from all of the sense fields, all of the physical sense fields, apart from the tactile. If you wish to close the eyes or hood the eyes, you may. If you wish to keep them open, that's your choice. Continue to let your awareness be still, but this time focus your attention. Select the tactile field single-pointedly, which means you're withdrawing from the surrounding environment, retreating, and deliberately letting your awareness illuminate just the somatic field with its fluctuations corresponding to the in-and-out breath. 
When, in the, when the in-breath is long, note that it is long. When the out-breath is long, note that it is long. And as your body-mind settles down, when the in-breath in is short, note that it is short. When the out-breath is short, note that it is short. While your awareness primarily illuminates the space of the body and the sensations associated with the breath, also be aware, of course, peripherally, of what's happening in the mind, the thoughts, images, whether laxity or excitation has set in. And of course, all the while, let your awareness be still, utterly at ease, clear and cognizant, as you note the duration of each in and out breath.
Now let your eyes be at least partially open, but vacantly rest your gaze in the space in front of you without anchoring your attention on any visual object or appearance. Just rest your awareness in space. Withdraw your attention now. Withdraw your attention from the somatic field and focus it single-pointedly on the domain of the mind, the space of the mind, and whatever events arise within that space. Distinguish between the stillness of your awareness and the movements of the mind. Continue to let your awareness be utterly at ease, free of grasping, naturally still when, when grasping is absent. And you, as you slip into this flow, you'll be able to simultaneously be aware of the stillness of your awareness and the movements of thoughts, images, and other mental events. This we call single-pointed mindfulness. Whenever you see you've been carried away by some thought or memory, let your first response be to relax yet more deeply, to release. 
And by the very fact that you are releasing all grasping, the awareness naturally returns to its own place, its own natural stillness. And now relax even more deeply by releasing the effort, no longer exerting yourself to attend to the space of the mind, the thoughts and images that arise within it. Release even that. Withdraw your attention, your awareness from the space of the mind and its contents. Go yet deeper into retreat. with no exertion at all, that your awareness remain where it already is, resting in its own place, holding its own ground, and simply being aware in the present, without distraction, without grasping, but not focusing on any object or appearance,
doing nothing, striving for nothing, hoping for nothing, simply being present, awareness resting in its own place, let the nature of your own awareness reveal itself to you. You won't find it by looking for it. Let it find you. But don't wait. It's already found you. Be aware of the awareness that is already there. That's enough. Observe who is this one who is meditating. Who is the agent? Observe who is this one who is observing.
I think there's no hurry to move on to the next bardo today. Um, tomorrow should be fine. I do want to have time, more time for conversation, for discussion, but I also have some old mail to attend to. So why don't I deal with this first, and then hopefully there'll be a fair amount of time afterwards for any, anything else that's coming up in your practice. So in no particular order, here's a question from Hieromo. Everybody know who Hieromo is? There he is. Everybody know him? That's that guy over there. Yeah. So he says, if I've understood correctly in the meditations in, in the search for the mind, I have an active role, asking questions and looking for answers. But in identifying awareness meditations, I'm completely inactive, doing nothing, just being aware. Is the description okay? Yeah, that's correct. Incorrect. Yeah, the, in the searching for the mind, it's an active inquiry. It really is Vipassana. Now, he's calling that whole section Vipassana, but Vipassana has a, an active phase and an inactive phase. Right? And so, but this is true everywhere. Uh, in the Galupa approach, for example, you're really seeking out the object of reification. That is, when you reify yourself or the mind or anything else, you really seek out, what am I grasping onto? What am I grasping onto? And then if you identify it, then you investigate that which I'm grasping onto as my mind or my very identity. And then you, so you engage in the, in the analysis. Does it actually exist? Right? But then when you, come to, you have some kind of a breakthrough, some insight arising, then as that arises, you, you stop the investigation and you just loosen up and rest in that knowing. Rest in that knowing. Uh, and overall, for identifying awareness, called Rikpa Motrupa, identifying awareness, that's really not a matter of inquiry. It's a matter of just being where it already is. So, that was a long way of saying yes. Is the description, if the description is okay, why the identifying awareness meditations are called Vipassana, doesn't that imply necessarily asking questions and looking for answers? So, there was my answer. And that is you look, and then when you have some insight, then you don't need to look anymore. Yeah. Uh, there, and you, you may recall there were two modes to that. What is the mind? What is the mind? The agent and so forth. But then he kind of scales it back. What is awareness itself? And is awareness itself findable? Is it an entity? So you're really doing that ontological investigation. In the best of all possible worlds, when you're taking this very methodically, step by step, by the time you come to that, searching for the mind, You've already achieved shamatha. So you already have a very clear phenomenological sense, experiential sense. What are the, you know, what are the salient qualities, the defining characteristics of, of consciousness? You already know that. It's, it's luminous. It's cognizant. You know that. And so then you're probing more deeply to see whether or not it inherently exists. So, okay, Hiarma gets a double header here. Here's Hiarma, number two. Uh, in the commentary, I find it very inspiring and beautiful, these two ideas together. Uh, page 120-something. Such awareness as this does not originate from the profound instructions of a guru, a spiritual mentor, uh, nor, does it, nor does it originate from your sharp intelligence. Due to this being, due to this being, introduced, by, due to this being introduced by the spiritual mentor, pupils knowing their own nature, believing it, and... Coming to certainty, the foundation is liberated in its own place. Yes, I agree. It's good. It's, it's good teaching. I think Padmasambhava. Thumbs up for Padmasambhava. Very good.
No, it's beautiful. It really is. And it just it keeps on coming back to that absolutely core theme of Dzogchen. Don't look outside. Don't look outside for the Buddha. Don't look to your guru as someone outside yourself. Uh, don't look to your intelligence. In a way, intelligence in a way is outside. I mean, sometimes we have it, sometimes we don't. Right? If your intelligence is at all like mine, sometimes it's very much on tap, sometimes not so much. You know, if I'm really tired, I'm fatigued, whatever, looking for my intelligence, it says, what? No, not really there. So even that, and, and of course, with Alzheimer's, senile dementia, brain damage, psychosis, then you see, oh, that very sharp intelligence I have. Don't have it anymore. So I, I'll leave this anonymous, but I knew one man, very eminent scientist. He just happened to be a scientist. He could have been a historian or an artist, anything. But we know each other well. You know, very smart, very learned, just really exceptional human being. And then senile dementia came, and I didn't visit him uh, because I, I was told, he won't recognize you anyway, so there's really no point. So there he was, I mean, very, very smart, uh, but then he wasn't. So that just shows, just like a pair of eyeglasses, you get it, but you can lose it. Whereas awareness, it can get shrouded, it can get covered, we all know that. It happens every time we fall deep asleep where there's no explicit knowing of anything. But there's one thing about awareness. It keeps on bouncing back. You know, even when you lose it for a while, even if you die or you become vegetative, it may not bounce back in this lifetime, but it's irrepressible. Otherwise, samsara would just run out of juice. Said, I'm tired. It would run out of gas. And then we'd just be free of samsara because we just got tired. But samsara is indefatigable. Keeps on coming back again. So here's from oh Camille, and I have to brace myself whenever Camille asks a question. I know, uh oh, it's going to be a big one. So, given the non-inherent nature of time, you see, he didn't mess around. He's not asking what should you do with my feet when I'm meditating. Given the non-inherent nature of time, um, something past, present, and future, which implies that there are as many universes as cognitive frames of reference or systems of measurement, so far all correct, does that mean that all cosmological theories, whether Buddhist, Christian, or Australian Aboriginal dream time, my personal one, if I have one, are all equally um, valid, since there is no ultimate objective reality out there? This has been around for a while. This came up several days ago. And I think I've pretty well addressed it. Yeah? I mean, certainly there's a, a, we can really investigate it a lot more deeply. But no, it's, and so I remember I gave the silly one of, well, I, in my world, there, uh, the Tanyapur is filled with Easter bunnies. You remember that one? Well, that can get refuted pretty easily. Right? Uh, but it's, it is a fast, so I quoted William Tsongkhapa, uh, first of all, and I think it's quite, it's, it's, it's simple, but boy, not trivial. And then William James coming in on the same, the same theme, which is quite remarkable. But it shows that it, it gives you no place. A scientist, scientist, you know, sharp scientist, and there are many of them, they've learned that don't get complacent. The really smart ones, and there are a lot of them. I've met a lot of them. Don't get complacent. Don't lock onto some view, some conclusion, and say, we never have to look at this one again. This one's absolutely certain. There was a lot of that in the 19th century. When Lord Kelvin said, a great, you know, great physicist of the latter part of the 19th century, he said, I can't quote him, but a very close, very close paraphrase. He said, well, we've, we've pretty much, we have now figured out how the universe works. There's really nothing more to be done in physics. 
except for fine-tuning. You know? uh, he's no fool, no fool at all, a very, very fine scientist. But they had been so successful with Newton and all that comes out of Newton, and then James Clerk Maxwell took care of electromagnetism. They had the ether, which was, was holding you know, electromagnetic fields and so forth. He was absolutely certain they existed. He said, that's what we're most certain of. It was really wonderfully ironic, retrospectively. Uh, if I had been living during that time, I wouldn't have had a clue. You know? But now we have the benefit of hindsight. He said, oh, that sounds awfully silly you know, to say that's what we're most sure of when he actually said it four, t four years after it had been disproved by Michael and Marley. The point here simply being that, especially in physics, it is simply the most mature branch of the sciences we have. It started early, got a head start before biology and way, way before psychology, cognitive neuroscience and so on. But it's had its maturity, it's had a chance to see, boy, we locked onto Newton. We thought he was the, you know, he was the final word, absolute space, time, matter, energy his three equations, now we know it's absolutely true. And then they found, well, actually, all of our fundamental, fundamental assumptions were wrong. Uh, and so there's been a real steep learning curve, especially in physics, of saying, well, this is our best at this time. You know? But it keeps you on your toes, the really good, open-minded, deeply inquisitive scientist and contemplative. It keeps you on your toes. When you think you've really understood something, now I understand reincarnation. Now I understand this. I understand that. I've nailed it. Now I don't need to ask any more questions. Then, well, look out. Maybe, maybe you're not quite finished yet. So there's something quite refreshing, invigorating about that strategy of venturing out into the world and say, well, in my perception, you know, I'm seeing this violet cushion right in front of me. And I'm going to assume that's correct until something shows me otherwise. But then maybe it will. Maybe I'll find I'm dreaming, and then suddenly it turns into a big mushroom, big psychedelic psilocybin mushroom, you know? And that, oh, that wasn't a cushion, and so forth. So there it is. But as William James said, you keep on reassessing. You look over your shoulder, and, and then also you listen to other people. And you don't get caught in one box, thinking, for example, only Buddhism has all the answers. I won't go to Hinduism. What do they know? Buddhism, the Buddha was omniscient, not... Hindu, Swami, this and that. Buddha, I don't need to look for anything outside of Buddhism. Or, as we've seen from Freud and many others, science is not illusory. Science is not an illusion. So don't look outside of science for any answers at all. And so many would rather have no answer than an answer that you'd have to get from outside science. We've seen that. And that's where stagnation sets in, like with the measurement problem and the mind-body problem, where there's really been no progress for 135 years a refusal to look outside the box that they feel comfortable in. Now, Buddhists do that too. So do Christians, so do Muslims, so do a lot of people. It's where we feel comfortable, but it's also where we stagnate. Yeah? So, second question. With respect to the theory of extreme uh, um, existence, um, something, information, uh, or, or information processing system could be hypothesize that Dharmakaya is, oh, is Dharmakaya is the informer, whereby ally is the informant. Informant. That's an interesting idea. Well, if I take a strict Dzogchen view to this, Dharmakaya is the informant, or the informer. Dharmakaya is the informer. Uh, and Dharmakaya is the informant. The whole universe is a soliloquy. 
And we see that very evidently in, the, in these multiple revealed teachings, revelations, you could say, uh, to Dujum Lingba. And the Bhadra essence is the first one I encountered. And just as a reminder, there is Samantabhadra, so personification of, of primordial consciousness. There is Samantabhadra manifesting in a particular way, manifesting as the late-born Vajra. And in this pure vision, called Daknang, the pure vision, of Dujum Lingba, so there is this youthful, this youthful late-born Vajra, his actual nature is Samatabhadra, and he's surrounded by this whole entourage or circle of Bodhisattva disciples, right? And each one has this, uh, how do you say, archetypal name, like Vajra of pristine awareness. It's not quite like Jack or Fred. He suggests probably something more is going on here. All of them have archetypal names. And, but they really, in this vision, they really look like you know, bodhisattvas in this pure vision, and they're posing questions as if they really need an answer. You know? And sometimes even debating, saying, but I, I don't see how that could be true. And then we have this kind of Socratic dialogue going on. And yet it's stated right from the beginning that all of these are displayed. The whole, the whole realm, this whole visionary realm that's coming to his mind, this Matabhadra, Lake Vajra, teacher in the center, the Bhagavan, and all the disciples round about, they are all equally displays of Samantabhadra. So in that perspective, then Samantabhadra is the beginning, middle, and end. Uh, that's just a straight Dzogchen view. Now from a relevant... His Holy Dalai Lama pointed this out. I've never seen it so clearly stated. And that is just taking, he mentions Sakya, Nyingma, and Galupa. But for simplicity's sake, I'm just going to go Galupa and, and Nyingmapa um, by brilliant teachers such as Longjem Rakchamba, and then going back to Padmasambhava for the Nyingma, and then Tsongkhapa. Tsongkhapa is the towering peak for the Galupa. And if you look at the mode of presentation, and we'll get to that quite quickly in the, when we go to the Dream Yoga teachings. You start reading it, and if you have a Galupa background, you say, wait a minute, that's, what not, that's not what Tsongkhapa said. He would never say that. And you're right, he would never say that. So look like, whoa, well, now, I don't know, I like being a Galupa. I'm not quite sure I want to stop being Galupa, because that's really not what Tsongkhapa said at all. And His Holiness, being a consummate scholar and practitioner in both, in both realms, he pointed out, yep, the manner of discourse is different. There's just no question about it. The methodology, some of the strategies a simple method of, of meditation, as in Vipassana, for example, are quite different. But Tsongkhapa, Tsongkhapa is writing as if from the perspective of a sentient being. It's said that he was an embodiment of Manjushri, so the embodiment of enlightened, enlightened wisdom. But his writings, his 18 volumes, are writing as if he's speaking from the perspective of a sentient being and he's speaking to people with the perspective of a sentient being. Right? Sentient being to sentient being. A, a more highly realized one to less realized ones. Right? But sentient beings. And so he's saying, well, look, if you look at your experience, what do you see? Do you see any mental afflictions coming up? Are you suffering? Do you have the causes of suffering? Are you always ethical? Is that, you know, do, you, do you have samadhi? Do you, you know, do you have paranormal abilities? Mundane cities? Superman? Do you have those? If you don't, if you do not have the quality, if you, if you look within and you don't see immeasurable supreme compassion, omniscient wisdom, inexhaustible power of Dharmakaya, if that's not what you see when you practice introspection, then you might draw the obvious conclusion. You're a sentient being. You know? And so... 
get over it. That's the way it is. But I will address you as such. That's what you, how you identify yourself with an enormous amount of evidence. And I will address, address you as such. And now let's uh, see how I can help. And then he lays out the lumrim. He lays out multiple stages. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can do. Step by step. Step by step. Through the lumrim, through the stages of generation, a lot of things to be done. Through the stage of completion, a lot of things to be done. Through those through, court, through, those through those true stages of highest yoga tantra, you have the vas empowerment, the secret empowerment, the wisdom gnosis empowerment, a lot to be done. And each of these corresponds to practices. Yeah, And then finally, 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 you know what I'm going to say. Yeah? Finally comes the word empowerment, the final empowerment, the final initiation. And uh, finally, that's where there's nothing to be done. Right? So there's one strategy. And then we have the strategy of Padmasambhava, and it carries through the whole Dzogchen lineage, uh, through Longjian Rapjamba, through Dujum Lingba, and so on. And they're just cutting right through from the very beginning. And the speaker is a self-knowing Buddha. And the self-knowing Buddha, Samantabhadra, Padmasambhava, whoever it may be, is just cutting, is like, looking like with X-ray vision, that not delusional, but looking over in Camille's direction and seeing the outer facade, the appearance of there being a sentient being, and like with X-ray vision, looking right through that and saying, this is just a human shell. It's so it's like, it's gone. Your life is just finished, you know, 80 years, 90 years, whatever it may be. Oh, that's gone. It was just like a little soap bubble, you know, on a windy day, you know, it's gone. So you look right through that fragile outer shell of your body, your mind, and seeing, looking deeper, and, and then seeing, of course, there's a substrate consciousness, that it's, but then it's another one coming up, another bubble coming up, and another bubble coming up. But then looking right through that, looking right through that, cutting through that substrate consciousness. But this all happens in an instant. Cutting through Camille, cutting through Camille's substrate consciousness, cutting through right to Rikpa and say, all right, I found my audience. I now find my audience. I, Samantabhadra. I address you, Camille. Pristine awareness. Primordial consciousness. That's the dimension of you I'm addressing, attending to. I have identified you. Now can you identify yourself? And so the whole discourse now is going, it's not insulting your intelligence. Never does that. Doesn't insult your, inter- uh, your substrate consciousness. I don't know how you do that, frankly. But it cuts right through it. It's just like, this is mind-to-mind transmission. It just cuts right through. I'm addressing you, the person who is listening, the one who is aware. I'm addressing you right down to your ground. Identify yourself. And so from that perspective, that's the, the Dzogchen view, then the way of talking about everything else, about Camille and Tanyapura and the suffering in the world and so forth, is seen from a radically different perspective. So one is seen from an enormously wise and insightful perspective as if from a sentient being. It's not saying that Tsongkhaba was less enlightened than Padmasambhava or Longjav Rapjamba. It is saying that by a skillful means, he recognized some people 
if you tell them immediately, your mind is Dhammakaya, their response would be, no, it's not. I have no evidence for that at all. There's a nice story there. It's worth telling. It's a parable. It's actually my favorite parable. And many of you have heard it, but some of you have not. And people on the podcast, you might not have heard it. It's the Buddhist story. The Buddhist story of the prodigal son, who was a prince. It's a lovely story. So listen, listen closely, even if you've heard it before. It's um, very moving, and it's very deep. So there was once a young and foolish prince. He was the crown prince. In other words, he was destined to become king. And as a young man, he went out to the, to the market, the marketplace, because there was an extraordinary illusionist who had come to town. Like nowadays, you know, we have that with a lot of technology. David Copperfield and others have tremendous technology make create these enormous, fantastic illusions. Well, back in classical India, it seems, according to all the lore, uh, they didn't have the great technology, but they had samadhi, the great illusionist. You know? This was common to Hinduism and Buddhism. They, had, they needed three things. They needed samadhi, they needed mantra, and they needed some physical substance. A physical substance. And I checked, what kind of physical substance? Like a magical substance, like psilocybin or peyote? or What? No, like a piece of wood. Just a support. Just, it could be anything, like a piece of wood. But three things, samadhi, mantra, physical support. And with those three, if one has really mastered this, then the illusionist could conjure up all kinds of just amazing special effects that we now have in movies, 3D movies, and so forth and so on. But this person could do it all with his mind. And now a footnote to a footnote. There's a yogi right now in the south of Bhutan. Ganjan Tugur Rinpoche told me about him. He's met him. He can do that. Remember, I mentioned to some people, he can it was a leopard and a deer, wasn't it? Remember? A ti- I don't think it was a tiger, but yeah, he can, he, there were a couple of animals he can just conjure up. He's a deeply seasoned yogi. I don't mean you know, cooked, I mean he's been meditating a long time. And <laughs> words come out, just kind of spill out sometimes. But he can, but Ganjan Dugaramacha, he, he said he's, everybody knows this in that area that he can, with his mind, create an, uh, create an appearance of a leopard or a deer. I think it was two animals. And look at it, everybody says, that's a leopard. But Gangdin Tugorimache, uh, he told me this when I was translating for him last spring in Bhutan. He said he went up to this yogi and said, what's the big deal about creating a leopard or a deer? Why don't you create something meaningful, like a Buddha image? That would be much more interesting. So he kind of challenged him a little bit. But in any case, this still is happening. So I have enormous trust in Gantin Dugurumachi. There's no reason he'd make that up. Absolutely none. So, but again, whether you believe it or not. So we go back to the story. There's an illusionist. And he, I'm sure he can do a lot more than a leopard and a deer. He can do the whole 3D special effects, the whole, the whole show. And this young foolish prince, he just got caught up in the whole story, the whole illusion. He was mesmerized by it totally enchanted by it. I mean, deeply enchanted by it. And somehow he got disengaged, he got separated from his entourage, and then just, but he just lost himself in these illusory displays, fascinated, mesmerized. And then the show was over, it all just kind of disappeared into space. 
And the young prince actually forgot who he was. And he looked around, he didn't see anybody he knew, and nobody around him knew him. And now the illusion's all gone. He's become a complete amnesiac. Had no idea who he was. He started getting hungry. So he's looking around, but he, does, he can't remember having any skills. He can't remember anything. He can't remember anything at all. And then he finds some beggars. And they say, well, they know how to get some food. So he asked to join them. I think maybe he gave them some of his clothes. He has nice clothes on. And they gave him some beggars' rags, rags, and he learned how to beg. It was a, place, a way to get some food, because he got hungry. And then days went by, and weeks went by, months went by. And he'd, you know, his clothes now, he looked like a beggar, he acted like a beggar, talked like a beggar, makes his living like a beggar. And now he knows who he is. He's a beggar. So, meanwhile, back at the palace, they're frantic. They don't know where the prince has gone. Somehow they lost him. And it's a c- catastrophe of the whole kingdom. They've lost the crown prince. That's a pretty big deal. The king is getting old. But they couldn't find him anywhere. So, who knows how long went by. Days, weeks, months, maybe even longer. Who knows? And so the, the young prince is now knows who he is. He's a beggar. Learned how to beg. He does it well. Well, in his, in his various wanderings about, he comes to one very nice mansion. And he says, oh, they would have some pretty good food here for sure. So he comes and knocks on the door. And lo and behold, the lord of the mansion comes out. Obviously a very wealthy, very dignified person. And the prince looks up at him and says, could you, could you spare some food? You know, I have nothing. I'm a beggar. Could you spare anything? Any scraps even? Well, the person who came to the door was the chief minister of the king. He had actually come to his home. And the chief minister of the king uh, immediately recognized, even though he's all dirty and wear rags and so forth, he saw him immediately, recognized immediately who he was. And he, and he just directly, immediately accosted him, but, Your Highness, Prince, you've returned. Fantastic, thank you. Come, come, come. Where have you... And the, and the young prince, the, the beggar, he's taken aback. And to put this a little bit in vernacular, colloquial, he says, oh, come on, wait a minute. I was just asking for food. I don't need your sarcasm. Prince, come, I know, I, I know I'm, come on, I just wanted some food. I don't need your sarcasm. You know, come on, please, cool it with it. food or no food. No food, okay, but don't give me this stuff. I'm a prince. And then the minister saw, he's really an amnesiac. He doesn't he doesn't know who he is. So now, he being a wise minister, he says, oh, well, he has to, um, then I must apply skillful means here. Because I can't just say it again, or say it louder, or, hey, I really know what I'm talking about. You know? So he has to apply skillful means. So he did. And he asked the, um, the, the beggar, he said, ah, I, I'm sorry, sorry, my mistake. But tell me, I'm very interested in you. Um, so you're a beggar, yeah. Please tell me, if you will. I'll, I'll be happy to give you some food. But I just have some questions first. Um, tell me, where were you born? Where were you born? Where, where did you grow up? Who were your childhood friends? Who were your parents? Where did you come from? That's a very reasonable question. And so the young, the young beggar prince, he knew that. That was a fair question. And he probed within. That's, that's a question I should be able to answer. And he looked and not only found that he couldn't remember, 
but he recognized there was nothing to remember. As he's trying to think of himself as a young beggar, with beggar parents, perhaps, he recognizes not only that he can't remember, but there is nothing there to remember. There is no memory of having been a young child beggar, or who his parents were. And in that moment of finding that there was no origin to be found, then he broke through his amnesia, and he recognized who he was. And in that moment, then, the chief minister, he recognized that his pointing out instructions had been effective. And he brought the young prince in, he bathed him, he gave him his royal garb, and they immediately brought him to the enthronement room, and he was enthroned as king. And in an instant, he became king. That's the story of the prodigal son in Buddhism. And the final question from Karim is Camille, Camille, keep on going to Karim, Camille. Uh, while past can be influenced by the present, while the past can be influenced by the present in a similar manner, future influences the present, is it on this basis that taking culmination of the path in Vajrayana has a rational basis? You nailed it. Yeah. That's correct, yeah. And, and I will add, there are two ways of understanding that. At least, I, I am aware of two ways of understanding that. <coughs> but the way you've articulated it, quite right. If the past is not inherently in the past, intrinsically, just waiting there, uh, waiting there for us to infer it, but more like Stephen Hawking and so forth, which is very congruent with Nagarjuna's theme of the, of the all three times being empty of inherent nature, which means they must be in, empty of inherent sequence also that immediately follows, it has to follow, then, then the future is not inherently sometime later. It, uh, the, the very existence of the future exists only relative to the present, as the past exists only relative to the present. And so, sure, that's one way of, one way of approaching this in a very rational way. And that is especially happens once bodhicitta has arisen. Once bodhicitta has arisen. Because once bodhicitta has arisen, and especially if it's irreversible bodhicitta, I'll explain a little bit. When I first heard this, I, just, I could not contain myself. I was so inspired, really. Because this is what I've been looking for, a path. And it was Gishin Avantaike teaching us Abhisama Alankara, Mundoki. After he taught us the Lamrim, he taught us the Bodhisattvatara, then he went directly to Abhisamalankara. All of this under the direct auspices of His Holiness. But as Gishin Amantaige, this was about to be in 1972 or so, was describing the path, he said, well, the Mahayana path begins. You've actually entered the Mahayana path. When having for some time, however long it takes, you've been cultivating bodhicitta, rooted in the four measurables, rooted in great compassion, great loving kindness, great empathetic joy, and great equanimity, then you'll have these spikes. I've often used the word spikes. You'll have these surges of authentic bodhicitta arising, where everything about it is authentic. You, you cherish others more than yourself, deeply rooted in compassion, taking on that resolve, that pledge, the 
I shall liberate all sentient beings from, from all suffering and its causes. In order to do so, I must achieve enlightenment. And it arises, right? But then, as one is cultivating, then it tapers off. Then self-centeredness comes in. It, kind of, it, it dies down a bit, almost like a flame. It flares up, and it dies down again. But one keeps on cultivating, 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 until eventually it's called Jumamayimba. And that is your bodhicitta arises, and then it just, it just now flows. You don't need to keep on revving it up. You don't need to keep on activating it. It's now, it is, simply has become the flow of your mind. That's your prime directive, your desire beneath all your other desires. And I made a big mistake several years back. I think it was here in Phuket. I was talking about something of this sort. And I was talking about how many layers of desires we have. And when you enter the Bodhisattva path, or when you really cultivate bodhicitta, that becomes your desire of desires, your most foundational desire, the deepest desire, core desire. But then we have secondary desires, and tertiary, and all the way up. And so at one point I said that, well, I have many desires myself. You know, Some are very trivial, and some are quite deep. Bodhicitta, certainly I aspire for that to be my deepest aspiration. But I was looking around, and one day this occurred, I think maybe the first retreat here, as far as, I, as far as I can recall. And I thought, okay, now what's, what's my most superficial desire? Way up in the crust. You know, bodhicitta being down at the core. Now, okay, I just try to pull it out of the hat. Okay, what's the most superficial desire I have? Okay, I like dark chocolate over milk chocolate. <laughs> Boy, was that a mistake. How many pounds I've put on. How much sugar I've eaten. How many... I can't quite say tons, but massive loads of chocolate have come my way since then. I'm thinking, why didn't I say a Porsche? I like Porsches over Audis. Now that would have been really useful. One Porsche would do, you know. I really don't need a whole lot, but no, I had to say chocolate. And so I've been inundated with dark chocolate ever since. Oh, man. You know, learn from your mistakes, so you know, be careful what you wish for. Because all I was saying, it was a really trivial desire. Uh, but the point being here, coming come back to the core, the, as you cultivate bodhicitta, it's jumma, jumma, jumma. Jumma means you're cultivating it, creating it, arousing it with effort, visualizing all sentient beings are my mother, and so forth and so on. But then at some point, it just, then it goes effortless. It's like shamatha. At the beginning, a lot of effort, and then when you get up to stage nine, slick. Jumma mayimba unartificial, uncreated, unfabricated, effortless samadhi. You slip right in. So when that happens, when that happens, that your bodhicitta now is just free flow, uncontrived, it just happens effortlessly. You wake up in the morning. His holiness was asked, how do you wake up in the morning? He said the first thought is bodhicitta. He wakes up, oh, bodhicitta coming. Why not? Why not start that now? You know, it's not too soon. When that happens, on the, on the day that happens, that's when the Buddhasattvas and the Buddhas rejoice. Another Buddhasattva has been born. That's it. That day that your bodhicitta is uncontrived. It is effortless. You're a Bodhisattva You've entered the Mahayana path of accumulation, the small stages, small, medium, and great stage. 
You've now entered the door. You're now a bodhisattva. And now the time clock, you know that three countless eon time clock? It's begun to tick. <laughs> You've entered the path. If you're going to follow the bodhisattva path, the sutrayana path. Now you're actually, you know, the, the, the time clock is on. Until then, you haven't started yet. But it is reversible. On that first stage, it is possible that you could lose it. And there are stories of that in the Buddhist accounts. Uh, wasn't it Dhammakirti that almost? Dhammakirti? Dhammakirti or Dignaga? Who was it? Dhammakirti? I think it was Dignaga. One of the two. One of the great logicians, epistemologists of the Buddhist tradition. But he was debating with someone. Man, I'm going on to tangents a lot, aren't I? But they're good stories, aren't they? I mean, really. These are pretty good stories. I think it was Dignaga, but it's faulty memory. It's an old memory. But he was debating with someone. And, you know, just, just classic. It was what Indian great pundits would do. They were debating. And the other guy was just, as I, recall, I don't remember all the details, but basically cheating. You know. And uh, at one point, Dignaga just got so exasperated. He said, oh, sentient beings are like this. I give up. You know, they don't want to be enlightened. They don't want it. They just want to screw around. And so he took a tablet. You know, they would write on tablets back then. And he said, here's a tablet. He said, he threw it up. He said, if this tablet falls to the ground, I'm giving up bodhicitta. It's just like, I'm so bloody tired of all this. Trying to lead people, lead people. And they don't want to be led. They don't want to. They just want to have their own way. They just want to make their own point. They want to win all the arguments. I've, I've had it, you know. It's hopeless. I'm just going to achieve enlightenment. I'm just going to achieve nirvana. And, you know, good luck, everybody. But, you know, you just, you wore me out. So he takes this, this slate and throws it up in the air. If it comes down, I'm giving up bodhicitta. He threw it up. Up in the sky, he sees Manjushri holding the slate. He said, something like, don't give up so easily. So he wasn't allowed to give up his bodhicitta. So at what point... Andre, you must know the story. Did I mangle it completely, or is it good enough? Was it Dignaga, wasn't it? I think so, too, yeah. Um, pretty close, though. Anyway. But the gist of it was that. But the point is then... So I heard that. I heard about when Gishing Antagya is telling us this. I thought, okay, but then I definitely want the irreversible one. What do you have to do to make your bodhicitta irreversible? Because clearly, that entry level, that small stage of the Mayana path of accumulation, you could fall back. I don't want to fall back. I really, really don't want to fall back. And then Gishinga and Taiki told us, well, then you need Vipassana. You need Vipassana. You need the four applications of mindfulness to realize this lack of inherent nature, of a real self, the autonomous controlling self. You need to recognize that. You need to realize that. And if you have then the armor of wisdom, of knowing identitylessness, personal identitylessness, that will do. That will do, to, do for starters. Then no matter how people behave, no matter how, no matter how, no matter how badly they behave, in general or towards you, then your bodhicitta is protected by your wisdom. And now it's irreversible. So, but it, so Buddhahood could come in a relatively short time, relatively long time. That all depends on the skillful means that you apply. But from that point on, it's called the medium stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation. From that point on, now it's, now it's definite. 
you're going to become a Buddha. And you'll never be a not Bodhisattva. In all your, in all your future lifetimes, you'll always be a Bodhisattva. Never once anything, other, anything less than a Bodhisattva. I heard that say, that's what I want. And Geshe Ngaman Taige told us, if you're starting to practice Dharma as you are, young person, if you don't achieve bodhicitta in this lifetime, then what is your life worth? What are you doing? What was more important than that? If you don't achieve bodhicitta in this lifetime, why? How could you think something more important than that? You know, he really got to me. You know. So now coming back to your point. From that point, then you can say, all right, you're bodhisattva. That means you are moving in the right direction every single lifetime which means there is a point in time. Exactly when? Who knows? But there is a point in time when you will become a Buddha. The Dalai Lama has been asked, will everybody in the universe, 100 billion galaxies, and then 100 billion times that, planets maybe, will everybody in the universe become enlightened? Will there come a time when all sentient beings are no longer sentient beings, they're all enlightened? His only was asked that. He said, no, no, hope so. Everybody has the capacity, but we can't say, yeah, this is how long it will take. Can't point to it, but hope so. That means then we have some responsibility, right? We can't just say, oh, well, if it's all taken care of, then I'll watch. Let, let's see how it turns out. You know, can't do that. So again, to come back to the point, because you raised an interesting one. Well, if that's the case, then if that Buddha that you will become is not inherently separate from you in time, then you can reach out with your mental finger and pluck the future and take it into the present, since it's not inherently far away. And say, in that case, I will take the fruition as my path. I'm going to be sneaky, and that's going to collapse three countless eons, maybe into as short as one lifetime. That's skillful means. Tsongkhapa teaches it brilliantly. They all do, but he's really brilliant. And so that's one way of looking at it. But the other way of looking at it, and that would be a good Galupa way of looking at it. Hey, it's a reality. You've achieved bodhicitta. It's irreversible bodhicitta. Your Buddhahood is a reality. It's a done deal. It's given. It will happen. It's certain. It does exist. Well, then, in that case, I want it. Yeah, it should take it right into the present. That would be from that perspective of a sentient being. Where you dissolve your ordinary sense of identity into emptiness, and out of this ground of Dhammakaya, indivisible from emptiness, then you arise in that mode of taking the fruition of the Buddha that you will be and drawing that into the present. But the Dzogchen perspective a little bit different. From the Dzogchen perspective, the three times are simultaneous. The Dzogchen perspective is in the fourth time that views all the three times simultaneously. In which case, you're not reaching off into the future to pluck anything and draw it back in here. You're saying, but this is already true. There is a perspective. There is a, here it is right now. There is a perspective right now from which it is valid to say, Camille is a perfectly enlightened Buddha. Not later. Not after you've achieved irreversible bodhicitta. Before you've even begun to develop bodhicitta. There is a perspective from which it is valid to say that Camille is a perfectly enlightened being. And that perspective is your Rikpa. 
this, from that perspective, there's nothing to achieve. It's realizing that which already is. Because the ground, the path, and the fruition are all simultaneous. In the fourth time, they're simultaneous. That's a great perfection. So here's an older one also. The Practices and Conceptual Frameworks. This is anonymous, so I'll just read it. The practices and conceptual frameworks presented are quite sophisticated and many of the reference quite subtle and abstract. So I wonder, what does Buddhism have to offer to the wide spectrum of mentally handicapped people? It's a very compassionate and wonderful question. Um, in, at the time of the Buddha, there was already quite a highly developed Indian Ayurvedic system of medicine. Uh, the Buddha had his own personal physician. Uh, and of course, a practitioner of Indian Ayurvedic medicine, uh, Tibetan medicine is an offshoot of that. That I know. I actually know that one right. I don't know much about history, but that one I've, I know from Yeshudundan. Uh, but the point being that there was a medical tradition in place already, and the medical tradition did have medications and so forth for not only a wide variety of physical, physiological illnesses, but also illnesses related to the prana system and therefore to the mind. And so that, that whole issue of the mentally handicapped, insofar as they can be helped, like, like psychosis or something like that, um, well, that really was not... You don't find a section of Buddha Dharma that I know of. I have to be careful here. But whether in the Pali Canon, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, and so, so forth, I've never seen a section, okay, here are meditations, here are some special therapies for people who are schizophrenic for people who are in a vegetative state, people profoundly suffering from profound dementia, people suffering from brain damage of one sort or another. This is what Buddhism... I've never heard of that. Andrea, do you ever heard of, heard of that? No, I, I don't think it's there. I think we would have heard of it by now. <coughs> so overall, the Buddha Dharma, whether it's in the Pali Canon or right through the Mahayana and Vajrayana, overall, it's primarily really intended for adults, because I've never seen, again, my, my knowledge is very limited. I'm not being humble, it's just fact. I've never seen any, here's the Buddhist teachings for children, of age 5 to 10. Or here's the achievement for little, little tiny toddlers. And here's, for, here's the adolescent dharma, you know, from the Buddha. I don't know of any such. You generally, the discourses are really the Buddha addressing adults, who are reasonably sound mind. Now, they may be criminals, they may, have, they may have done horrendous things, like one was a serial, serial killer, Angulimala, Angulimala. He was a serial, serial killer. I mean, really heavy duty. I mean, nothing cute about it. He was really a... That's, that's it, he was a serial killer. But he wasn't insane. He was actually had a terrible teacher who told him this would be helpful for his path to enlightenment. It's crazy. But, you know, we've heard about religious fanatics. They didn't just crop, crop up recently. So, but yes, the Buddha had teaching for him. But now, my, so there it is. As far as I know, that's historical fact. Uh, they didn't, in the, in the Buddhist monasteries in Tibet, or now in India, or Bhutan, and so forth, they don't have special courses for, here's Buddhist theory and practice for the mentally handicapped, the psychotic, and so forth and so on. They just don't have that. Uh, having said that, though, uh, might people, now in our 21st century, are there people who are professionally trained to deal with the mentally handicapped, the severely mentally disabled through psychosis or severe neurosis, uh, and so on, are there people who do have that professional training, which you don't get as a Buddhist monk, or scholar, or yogi, uh, are there such people who are 
aware of at least some aspects of Buddhist theory and practice, who are taking them and seeing if they can adapt them to a people with serious mental problems? There, the answer is yes. Even schizophrenia. I've heard of some research going on in Australia right now for schizophrenia. And of course, for chronic depression, uh, there are a number of people doing very good work in that field. Uh, and, there, there will be, and there's a lot more. I haven't, I haven't covered all the literature. So that's where the kind of a really, if I can say, I don't mean to be crass, but kind of a real growth, in, growth industry of people of good heart, really compassionate hearts, drawing from their expertise in their modern training in psychiatry, psychotherapy, and also using pharmaceutical drugs. They can play a very important role here. And then interface and drawing from, selecting from this whole array of practices uh, from Buddhism and seeing can we adapt these as we seek to adapt them for children, adolescents, and so forth. Can we also adapt them for the very elderly, people whose minds are not so clear anymore, or people handicapped in various ways. So that's an area that I think has a lot of potential, but we're just now beginning to tap it. I'm looking at Camille still, but uh, that's just kind of habit. So I mentioned three prerequisites following the path. No prejudice, that is being free of prejudice, yearning to put the teachings into practice, being perceptive. Yes, that's from Aryadeva's his 400 stanzas. Can one conclude on the basis of what is categorized as a mental handicap in mounted society that the concerned person is most likely not perceptive enough and therefore not able to practice the path? This is exactly where skillful means comes in. Um, there are cases, a severe chronic depression is a good, good example, because I know people working in the field, John Teasdale and uh, Mark, Mark Williams. Mark Williams? Yeah, Mark Williams and Zidl Siegel. I've met, I think I've met all three of them, and Mark Williams I know moderately well. Uh, these are all highly trained psychiatrists, psychotherapists, um, and they, they really have been focusing on mindfulness practice, basic John Kabat-Zinn style mindfulness practice. But what they found through years and years of practice and research is that if a person is, has really severe, acute depression, you can't teach a meditation. They cannot practice it. What you can give them is some prescribe, if you have the expertise, the appropriate psychopharmaceutical drug to, to attenuate the symptoms so they can manage, their, their, you know, they can get, have their head above water. The symptoms subside somewhat, and then while they're subsiding, then give them some meditation. And then gradually, in the best of all possible worlds, you can gradually wean them off the medication so they're less and less dependent, and then hopefully they can really have a recovery. So that would be one case, post-traumatic stress disorder, general anxiety disorder, insomnia, and so forth. There's a whole list there. ADHD. ADHD. Uh, people have it very severely, probably can't meditate at all. But give them Ritalin or whatever, Adderall, whatever, they need, whatever the doctor prescribes. And then if their, their symptoms are managed, then see while their symptoms are managed, now well, let's try a little bit of basic five-minute session of mindfulness of breathing. And then you may be able to win them off. That has happened happen very effectively. But again, this is a lot of research to be done. So is it conceivable that a person with Down syndrome can get tangible or even full benefit from Buddhist practice? It's feasible, and then therefore, let the research begin. Let the research begin. And what about autistic spectrum disorder? Let the research begin. For those who aren't perceptive enough, what does Buddhist Dharma have to offer? Let the research begin. And what have you taught handicapped people? If yes, which practices? Uh, the only I've never even thought of them as handicapped. I don't know if that's right, the right word. I've not, I, I have taught people in a scientific study took place in, in UCLA and the University of Vienna 
in Austria. I have taught people with epilepsy. I ne actually, it's interesting, I never thought of them as handicapped. I don't know whether that's the right word or not, but I didn't think that way. I just thought they have epilepsy. And the, uh, it was a very modestly funded study, very, rather quite a small, small number of people. Um, and it was not a successful study. I taught them the, what, what I thought would be most helpful, some basic, basic shamatha. But what I didn't know until after, the, after I taught them, and I really found it immensely meaningful, I learned so much, I, I, I might have benefited more than anybody else there. Um, I got to know them. It wasn't just come in, I teach, and you go away. I got to know them, individually, all of them, each of them. And in some cases, how they, how they got epilepsy. They weren't all born with it. Uh, I, learned them as I learned about them as individuals. Uh, and then I learned, after the study was done, why the meditation is just overall not clearly beneficial, at least not for the group as a whole, uh, to my chagrin. And that is one of the... There are many things that can trigger epilepsy. I learned this when I was in, when, in, in Vienna. Um, there was one man, remarkably intelligent. He had quite severe epilepsy. Remarkably intelligent. Um, youngish man, maybe 30, 35. And while, we were, while I was there, George Bush came to Vienna. Not very popular there, I believe. Uh, no comment. And, uh, but that means they blocked off a bunch of streets. Because the President of the United States is coming through, they blocked off a lot of streets. So this fellow had a really hard time getting from his home to the university to get to this class. And he knew why he was getting a hard time, because it was George Bush. And that really pissed him off. So by the time he got to the, this university laboratory setting for this class, he was really, really upset that this American president he didn't like anyway had really been an obstacle for him. And then he told me, we had a morning session, afternoon session, and he said, well, I won't be here for the afternoon session because I've gotten really upset now, and that's going to tr trigger an epileptic seizure, so I'll have to stay home for the afternoon. So if that were, if that were the norm, then I'd say, oh, good, well, I can help with this. Buddhism has a lot to offer for that type of irritation, that type of anger, right? I said, wow, this can really help. But as it turned out, and here's the sad news, uh, one of the things that can trigger an epileptic seizure is feeling very, very relaxed and deeply calm. Didn't see that one coming. So... That relates to our practice here. And that is, I've heard so many times uh, here in Phuket, people will be in the midst of an eight-week retreat and uh, they'll come to me for a weekly meeting and they'll say, well, last Saturday I just slipped into this flow. I had the best meditation and it continued on to Sunday and into Monday. It's just like, whoa, this is what it can be like. The mind's so calm and peaceful, such a sense of well-being arising. It was Saturday, it was Sunday, Monday, and then Tuesday the bottom dropped out. Just like crashed. My mind was all over the place, it was agitated, emotions coming up all over the place, and I'd get really tired and dull, and then it'd be agitated, more emotions coming out. I thought, ay, 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 it was going so well, and they just crashed, crashed and burned. What happened? 
And what happened was your mind, that when you do have these really good sessions, this is when the mind is really settling in its natural state. And as it does so, count on it, when the mind settles in its natural state, it stirs up emotions, memories, thoughts, mental afflictions of all kinds, and it's all kinds, low self-esteem, hatred, lust, jealousy, you name it. It stirs it up. As long as you're splashing on the surface of the mind, then what's coming up is just what's triggered by what happened five minutes ago. But when you're going deep into meditation, spending six, eight, ten hours a day, and you're dropping anger down into the depths of your mind, and as that happens, stirring up, stirring up, the deeper the meditation, the deeper the stirring, then emotions, memories, and so forth that maybe have not come to mind for years or even decades will be stirred up. And they come up to the surface, and these are called upheavals. And it's a sign, as Dujum Lingba says, a sign of progress. After you've had three really good days, and the next day you're back on stage one out of nine, and maybe you've been here for six weeks, and you're saying, ay caramba, how could this be happening? You, on that day, say, wow, this is a real sign of progress. My meditation today really sucks. This is worse than when I never meditated at all, when I thought I was really quite sane. Now I'm really getting somewhere, because I'm really dredging the depths of my psyche and having it come up. Well, of course, that's no fun. I've heard this a fair amount in the last few days. The last week, overall, not that much fun. A bit challenging for some people. You know? But was it dredging? Was it merely a misfortune? Would it have been altogether better if we'd simply been able to avoid that, just not say something, do something skillful, and none of the disruption that occurred, if it not, none of it had happened, would that have been better? And my answer is maybe, I don't know. But it did happen, it did stir, and things come to light, and we see it. It was an upheaval, it's an upheaval. View it. View it. That's what we're here for, to practice Dharma. Whether the upheaval is triggered by something internal, external, internal and external. When the upheaval happens, that's the time to practice Dharma. And nobody ever would say it, said it would be easy. I love quoting here, I think it was Betty Davis, pretty sure. Remember? Old age is not for sissies. Remember that one? And having seen my parents age, my mother's passed away now at 88, my father... Still very much alive at 89, 90 in just a couple of months. Not easy. Not easy getting that old for so many reasons. Uh, old age is not for sissies. Well, shamat is not for sissies. If you wanted to have a nice, peaceful, comfortable practice, I'm not sure there is such, but shamatha isn't it. You know, one that will enable you to have padding to be able to cloak your body-mind in padding so whatever comes up, it will just hit a squishy surface and bounce right off. You know, like global warming and the depletion of all the fish in the ocean and the contamination of groundwater and ethnic cleansing and, and just kind of like, gosh, what a shame. Oh, that's too bad. Oh, oh, but that's the way it goes. Is that really the ideal? You know? 
don't think so. So how then to deal with the upheavals? You know, wherever they're triggered by, whatever they're triggered by. If you have no mental addictions, you'll not have any upheavals. You'll simply be in a world in which there's a lot of suffering and a lot of mental afflictions. But you won't have upheavals. If there's nothing to heave up, nothing to upchuck, then you won't upchuck. You'll simply be responding with compassion, with wisdom, helping in whatever way you can. So this is where, again, I'll end on this note, we have the, the ethics, the foundation. Everybody knows that, sometimes we forget. On that basis, the cultivation of samadhi, right? shamatha, etc. On that basis, the cultivation of wisdom. So there's a nice linearity there, progression. Just like relaxation, stability, vividness. Not the same, but similar kind of thing. But the, really the splendor of this is not simply how well this is thought out, how wise, how effective, ethics, samadhi, wisdom, but also the wondrousness of the fact that as you're cultivating your mindfulness and your introspection, developing samadhi, that this then returns the favor to your ethics, brings you greater intelligence, greater awareness, greater mindfulness to recognize more and more subtle modes of unethical and harmful behavior. So your shamatha returns the favor to ethics. As ethics is the foundation for samadhi, samadhi then enlightens, illuminates, brings greater clarity to your ethical wisdom, your ethical intelligence. But likewise, and the point I'm just about finished here, with samadhi, so we learn the techniques. We got the techniques. They're not that hard. I mean, they're not easy, but they're not that hard to understand, right? And we're doing them, okay, I know how to do mindfulness of breathing. I've got settling the mind. I can, I, I can do that awareness of awareness for a little while. I know how to do it. And then upheavals come up, you know? Well, if you've had no wisdom, if you have no insight, no vipassana, if you're reifying everything you touch, everything you perceive, those upheavals are going to beat you to a pulp. They will mug you. They will torture you. So much so that you might feel, this is impossible. I cannot possibly develop samadhi. As soon as I go deep, I get beaten to death. And I try to go deep and I get beaten. I get mugged at every corner. I can't, I can't do this. I don't know why it is. I think I, maybe I'm just intrin- intrinsically screwed up. I'm just not one suitable. You know? I have Buddha nature, but I can't get to it. Because as soon as I go deep in practice, all the crap flows up. Well, that's true. The question is, are you going to reify it or not? If you're going to reify it, you are stuck. And indefinitely stuck. Whereas if you can let your wisdom, any insight, even one milligram of understanding of emptiness filter into your shamatha practice, then you're in a position to start enabling those upheavals, the emotions, the mental afflictions, to unravel themselves without having to antidote each one, one by one by one. You'll see them as empty appearances. You'll rest your awareness in its own nature, and you'll watch your mind heal. Not if you reify it, though. But if you don't reify it, if you can see it as empty appearances, empty appearances, with no owner and no substantial inherent existence of their own, then resting there in your own awareness, which is by nature pure, luminous, clear and cognizant, you can watch your mind heal and the mental afflictions unravel, dissolve right into the space of the mind. That's where wisdom comes and serves shamatha. And there's the wheel of dharma. That the ethics serving samadhi, ser- samadhi serving wisdom, wisdom serving samadhi, samadhi serving ethics, and a wheel of dharma. Hop into that carriage and it will take you all the way to enlightenment.
Emma Ho. How wonderful. Enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow morning.